0: Hello there, welcome to Pound the Rock, another quarantine edition. I'm Joe Wolfon, and I'm joined remotely by co-host Joseph Cacharo. What's going on? Not too much, man. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. been uh, a lot of the same for the last little while, and the days just sort of bleed together a little bit. But, you know, I'm writing a lot, trying to keep my head above water and, and getting through. How about you?
1: Yeah, same. Uh, trying to stay busy as you are we both got some projects on the go. And uh, that's about it. Working, eating, sleeping, trying to get, you know, trying to stay active, getting some workouts in. Streaming yeah, Netflix, think... reading things. <laughs> and uh, I think I've listed all there is to do in life in, a, in the
0: quarantine. I do think that the staying act, active and exercising is a really important yeah component of all this, uh, and I've found kind of in my lower moments that that's been something that's really helped to pull me out of it at least a little bit. Yeah. So I think we should start this week's episode with with a bit of somber news. Carl Anthony Towns' mother, Jackie, uh, passed away earlier this week due to complications from COVID-19. Towns had a, a couple weeks earlier put out that Instagram video announcing that she had been put into a medically induced coma. And uh, the Timberwolves put out a statement early this week announcing that she had passed away. Obviously, you know, condolences to Towns and his entire family. Um, His mom, you know, by all accounts, was a a great person and a monumental figure in his life. Uh, He chose to represent the Dominican Republic in international competition because of her Dominican roots. Uh, If you want to read more about her, actually, there's a great piece in The Athletic by friend of the pod, John Kraczynski. He just, I think, really captured Uh, the relationship between her and Kat. And I I don't know. I just feel like something like this kind of puts things in perspective. Like we've been talking a lot about when or if basketball can return and whether we might be robbed of seeing an NBA champion crowned this season. And I feel like something like this just sort of makes all that stuff feel very small and irrelevant. And like all this talk about you know, opening the country back up or, or playing part of a sports season in a bubble while this virus is still running absolutely rampant and taking lives. is just, I don't know. What are we doing, Cash?
1: Yeah, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Again, you know, I, I mentioned last week that I do understand. I i, I don't want to at all sound like I understand the complete callousness of, of some businessmen when it comes to saving their profits. I, I don't mean that at all. But I do understand. Um, how any of these sports leagues would at least investigate the possibility of trying to salvage some of the business. And, and, you know, as long as they're talking to the right experts and trying to come up – like, I'm I'm fine with them thinking outside the box up until the point where they actually start something against the better advice of experts. But, as you said, when when tragedy really hits close to home for one of these sports leagues, and, you know, in this case, the NBA with Carl Anthony Towns losing Mm -hmm. his mother – I do wonder if that puts – I mean, it puts it into perspective for us. I do wonder if that puts it into more perspective for someone like Adam Silver or those that are investigating how to get the league back up and running. Um, You know, to be honest, uh, I suspect not. I suspect that they probably um, have to continue doing their thing and looking for ways to get the season back up and running, whether that's possible or not. Um, The only other thing I'd throw out there is, you know, this is – Carl Anthony Towns, and it's affected the NBA, obviously. But given, as you mentioned, the way the virus is running rampant in the states, in New York, even in Canada to a certain degree, you know, it's the kind of thing where chances are, even if you know, even if you're not directly affected or your immediate family is not directly affected, there's a chance you probably do know someone or might know someone who is affected. So, for any of our listeners that are in that boat whether their life's been maybe turned upside down a little bit by this um, employment-wise, personally, emotionally, or whether they're directly affected by the illness itself. Um, Obviously, we're thinking of you, and we hope that these pods, as trivial as they may seem to talk about basketball during these times, can can give you, you know, 45 minutes to 60 minutes where you don't have to think about that.
0: Yeah, and I mean, just to, to that point about Business interests and like, of course, like the league is going to explore every avenue, and I'm not saying they shouldn't. I just don't see how they can do it in a way that is going to like guarantee the safety of the players and their families, and all the personnel that would have to be involved, including you know medical personnel and all the resources that it would require. It's just, I, I just don't know that it makes sense. I'm like, I adore basketball. It's like my entire life, basically, and obviously, I would love for the season to come back, but it just doesn't seem like it's worth. The risk, and that's that's kind of where we're at with that right now. Well, if it doesn't come back, then uh, you know it, it'll be interesting
1: to see how the league handles a variety of um, actual, I guess, basketball-related issues. One of them being uh, the thing we're going to talk about today: NBA awards. I mean, I, I suppose they'll just send out the ballots to various media, and, and people will vote on them based on what happened through March eleventh, I guess. So. That's what we were going to talk about today is who we would vote for for the
0: seven big NBA awards if the season is indeed over. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, so Adam Silver has given himself time, right? Like he's he said, the league's not going to make a decision until May 1st. And we'll see come May 1st whether he wants to continue to bump that back and just sort of see how this plays out and see if there is some way that they can return. And like I've said in the past, I think that they will delay that decision for as long as they possibly can. So I'm not really sure when they will get around to like sending out ballots. And obviously they're not going to do that until they've actually announced that the season is over. So for now, we're kind of in this holding pattern. But we talked about all NBA teams last week. We are going to talk about our picks for the NBA Awards in this episode. And to our listeners, if you stick around after our chat about the awards, you will hear about a 25 minute interview that Cash had with Stefan Marbury. Uh, It was part of an Instagram live chat from a couple nights ago. And uh, a really fascinating talk about his circuitous professional basketball journey, uh, his new documentary, his, uh, his playing and now his coaching career in China. And also the role that he is playing um, I think in raising awareness and, and, and actually helping to accrue some resources for, America in the midst of this coronavirus crisis.
1: Yeah, it actually all started. We did one of the the YouTube series that we do now called The Story Behind. first episode was on Marbury, and he seems to be a fan of our Instagram page, and it just so happened that uh, our 10-minute video came out the day after his new documentary, KD-produced documentary, by the way, Um, a kid from Coney Island was released, Uh, so he actually Reached out through the comments um, on our Instagram video, and then our social media team went back and forth with him a little bit, and we set up this Instagram live. So, yeah, um, you know, he was mainly coming on to promote his documentary and talk about, you know, some of the charity work he's done um, related to COVID 19 and specifically the crisis in the epicenter in his hometown of New York, even though he's currently living in Beijing. Uh, But yeah, we did then touch on a a few things related to his career and his coaching now in China feud with Larry Brown. And, uh, and then it ended with some fan questions during the IG Live. So If you stick around long enough, you'll also get to hear us kind of clown the Knicks, which I think our listeners are always up for.
0: Yeah, I would definitely recommend sticking around. I think it's a great interview. Yeah. And I, I know I talked to you about this um, off the air cash, but for, for anyone listening who hasn't read the last shot, um, it's a, a nonfiction book by Darcy Frey. And it kind of provides a snapshot, uh, among other things, of uh, a young Stefan Marbury during uh, his freshman year of high school, growing up and playing ball in Coney Island. And it's a pretty spectacular book, like one of my favorite books about basketball. And Marbury's actually like kind of denounced the book, like him and his dad. Um, and this is sort of addressed within but him and his dad are just like both extremely wary uh, and distrustful and um concerned about you know being exploited and and so I think like in later years Marbury is sort of uh, not wanted to have anything to do with it but it's it's just like a really spectacular read and so if anyone's looking for like a piece of basketball literature to consume during the hiatus, I would highly recommend the last shot. And I think it dovetails nicely with with the Marbury content that we've got coming out right now. Sweet. All right. So let's get on with it here. Um, we're going to talk about our picks for the NBA awards. And usually when we do this, like when we do it at kind of like the half season mark, we put forth three person ballots for each award. I think in the interest of concision this time around, we're just going to list our winners uh, and we can maybe talk about other guys that we considered or, you know, honorable mentions, but, you know, once again, I I know we had a a whole lot of overlap on our all NBA teams last week. I kind of expect that to be the case again today, because uh, unfortunately, you know, for the sake of spirited argument on this podcast, we happen to think about the game in very similar ways. So let's get into this and see how much overlap we've got this time around. Um, Cash, why don't you start us off with your MVP pick? Uh,
1: I would pick Giannis, but for the uh, spirit of that debate, I can talk a little bit about LeBron. I'm, I'm assuming, obviously, you went with Giannis.
0: <laughs> I did. So I, I went with Giannis for MVP and Defensive Player of the Year, and I feel like maybe uh, I will just talk about those two awards in conjunction yeah. as a result. But feel free to to make your case for LeBron, even as you tell me that uh, your pick would be Giannis.
1: Well again it just goes back to kind of what I was saying in the last couple episodes we had recorded while the season was still going and that it's not necessarily that I think LeBron caught Giannis for MVP because I don't it's that while people that were all in on Giannis for MVP seemed like flabbergasted by the fact anyone was even discussing LeBron in the MVP race I was equally flabbergasted by the fact people were making it seem like he wasn't even in the same realm of of Giannis in this MVP race and I do think that he was closing the gap. I think that weekend where the Lakers beat the Bucs and Clippers, while it is not the be-all, end-all, of course, I do think that inched LeBron closer. And even if you just looked at the fact that there was about, you know, what, uh, 18, 16 to 18 games left, the Lakers had closed within, I believe, three games of the Bucks, and were rolling. Like, I I just don't think anything was off the table. Now, obviously, if with the season shut down, and you can only go with the sample that we had. Yeah, I do think Giannis wins it. But LeBron led the league in assists. Uh, I think you can make the argument he elevated his teammates more. Uh, even though LeBron has the best teammate between the two teams, I think Giannis's overall supporting cast was better. And so you can get into the weeds a little bit and talk about maybe what what's more impressive in an MVP race. Is it a superstar like Giannis taking an already solid team and making them a 66-67 win team, which is what they were now on pace for after their three-game losing streak? Or is it LeBron taking a team that, without him on the court, is literally bad, they have a negative net rating with him on the bench, and making them a 63-64 win team, which isn't that far off the pace of what the Bucs were? I think there are ways you can construct an argument where LeBron's at least in the mix. Again, I still would vote for Giannis. I just don't think it is as overwhelming as
0: some have made it seem. I just don't, I think you can't hold it against Giannis that the Lakers were constructed in such a way that they relied as heavily on LeBron as they did. You know, which isn't to say the Bucs didn't rely extremely heavily on Giannis. Of course they did. But like the, the fact that the Lakers just didn't really have any sort of supplementary ball handling or playmaking uh, and that, you know, without him on the floor, their offense just didn't really have a chance of staying afloat. And like, that's, you know, borne out even with the minutes that Anthony Davis played without LeBron, uh, the Lakers weren't particularly successful because that isn't really Anthony Davis's game. And uh, there was just nobody else really on that team that was capable of running an above average offense. And, I think, you know, that's obviously a huge part of the reason the Lakers had a negative net rating without LeBron on the floor. And I I don't, I mean, that's obviously meaningful. You know, the fact that that he's on a team that was on track, like you said, to win 60 plus games, but that without him completely fell apart to the point that, you know, maybe they would have been a below 500 team like that obviously matters. And the load that he carried uh, as a result of the way the team is constructed also obviously matters. But you know i think the the more important comparison is like what were these teams doing while these guys were on the floor and and the Bucs with Giannis on the floor were significantly better than the lakers were with lebron on the floor the bucks with Giannis on the floor had a 16.1 net rating like that that's flabbergasting and you know even just on an individual level like the guy averaged basically 30 14 6 1 and 1 on over 37% usage with 61% true shooting for one of the best regular season teams ever. Uh, he upped his three-point attempts. He's taken about five a game, and he was hitting them at a respectable clip. Uh, and he was the linchpin of an all-time great defense. And, I mean, we can get into that a little bit more, I guess, when we talk about Defensive Player of the Year. But but that, to me, like, is the difference maker. And I know LeBron was great on defense this year, like far better than he'd been in the, the previous three or four seasons. And both of these guys, I think, really brought it like pretty much every night and went balls to the wall in a way that a lot of guys aren't doing in the regular season these days. I think they both deserve credit for that. But I think any way you slice it, Giannis was better pretty much across the board.
1: I do think um, one thing to know, too, is that while I was talking about um, the Lakers being net negative without LeBron and and maybe even the argument that him taking that Lakers team and making them a 63-64 win team might be more impressive than the Bucks being a 66-67 win team around Giannis. It, it is worth noting that through that, Giannis actually still has the greater overall on-off net rating of plus 12 per 100 possessions, whereas LeBron is 11.7. So as you mentioned, it's not necessarily fair to hold it against Giannis that his supporting cast was probably better when he still did um, – his presence still did elevate his team in a way that you can argue is still greater than LeBron. Right. Again, I, I I vote for Giannis. I think he's the MVP, which will make it back-to-back. guess I would make him with first back-to-back uh, since Curry. I guess not that long. but um, yeah. <laughs> It's
0: like two years yeah. ago.
1: He's like, oh, since LeBron. Nope, it was Steph Curry. Um, Yeah, and then I guess if you want to get into Defensive Player of the Year, since you were saying we can kind of talk about them in tandem, since we both would actually vote for Giannis for both. But again, for the sake of argument, I will throw out that I think AD was pretty close to this. And I think you can even make the argument Anthony Davis might have been closer to Giannis in Defensive Player of the Year than LeBron was to him in MVP. I think the Lakers having a top three defensive rating. It's pretty sh- shocking to a lot of people. I, I thought they'd be better than people expected defensively. I obviously didn't think they would be this good. And while, you know, we both mentioned LeBron's improved defense this season, um, Dwight Howard was surprisingly solid for them. And and their two big lineups were really good defensively. Danny Green and Avery Bradley, obviously, perimeter-wise, bring um, important defense to that team. But the most important defensive player on that team was Anthony Davis and, you know, we talked, I think it was last week or a couple of weeks ago maybe, about um, Anthony the way Anthony Davis made the Lakers matchup-proof. You know, that that's not just an offensive thing. I think that qualifies on the defensive end as well, uh, which is huge in the modern NBA. And then even just some of the numbers, like uh, he actually had better block and steal rates than Giannis, which surprised even me. Like, if someone had told me Anthony Davis had better steal rates than Giannis on the cupola of the season, I would have... Thought they were reading the numbers wrong, but it's true. He finished third overall in that stat. I always mention defensive plays per foul. Finish number two, Giannis was number one in defensive shot difference. So opponents, when Giannis was logged as the primary defender, shot 9.7% percentage points worse than they usually would from those spots. Um, against Anthony Davis, it was 8.3 percentage points worse. So they were number one and two there. Uh, Giannis also led the league in um, uh, defensive field goal percentage at the rim, and AD was a little lower 41, there. Yeah, insane. 41. 41.8%. insane. So yeah, I think, uh, again, I, I think Giannis is the defensive player of the year, but I think there's a Laker that is closer to him than maybe people are giving him credit for.
0: I mean, I I guess can get behind AD being second and, and maybe being a close second. I, I actually don't even think it's particularly close. I just I mean for one thing, okay, the Bucks defense relative to league average ranked uh and this is according to basketball reference efficiency metrics and I know like there are different sites and and different tracking databases have different metrics, but by basketball reference the Bucks relative defensive rating uh is third of all time, behind only the 04 Spurs and the 08 Celtics. They are 8.5 points per 100 possessions better than league average. That is bonkers. And yeah, that was like a total team effort. Brooke Lopez had a lot to do with it. Eric Bledsoe had a lot to do with it. Middleton had a lot to do with it. But but Giannis is the guy who makes it all work. And whether that's him, you know, essentially playing alongside one of the Lopez twins and, you know, sort of doing all the assignment toggling and switching around the perimeter while those guys hang back and protect the rim, or whether they're playing with him at the five and he's the guy who's the backline rim protector, which is honestly like not something that they'd had a ton of success doing in the past, but that was very successful this season. Uh, and you mentioned that, that defensive field goal percentage at the rim, 41.8%, just ridiculous. And uh, I, like how often is it that you can say that the best rim protector in the league is also one of, you know, the three or four best perimeter defenders in the league and individual defenders in the league? Like, it's just, you just don't see that very often. And the Bucks, for for as amazing as their defense was, uh, it was seven point seven points per hundred better uh, with Giannis on the floor. Ninety six point five defensive rating with him on the floor. I, I just you take all this stuff into account. Um, look and you know look at what he was able to do at both ends of the floor. And to me, like this isn't just this this isn't just the best individual season this year. It's one of the best regular season performances that we've ever seen.
1: Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, he is a slightly – well, not slightly. He's a more dependable jumper away from being as complete a basketball player as you could manufacture in a lab, really. With the way he bends defenses with his driving and kicking, now it, it, he's become an improved playmaker from different spots on the floor. Defensively, as you mentioned, um, you can survive with him as somewhat of a rover you can have him as the anchor of your defense at the back. He can guard the opposing team's best perimeter player. Like, it, it's pretty astonishing the player he's turned into. And and then you look at how young he is, and you start to wonder, like, I don't know. Like, you'd probably have to make him the favorite. If this season's over and you project forward, he's probably opening as the favorite for MVP and defensive player of the year next year.
0: Yeah, like, why would he not? Right, you know, who... I, aside from voter fatigue you know if you're you're kind of looking up and down the league like who who are you thinking is going to take that mantle from him i mean maybe you look at like luca as a guy who just given the novelty factor and how much he improved this season and how good he could conceivably get in like the next year or two maybe he's the guy who you say could like kind of take that crown in the next couple of years or just be the guy that people vote for because they're tired of voting for giannis but I, it's hard to imagine somebody like next season having a better regular season than Giannis is going to have. And, and, you know, we can have a conversation, maybe not on this pod, but <laughs> at some point down the road about, uh, about whether Giannis actually is the best player in the league and whether in a playoff setting, he's the guy that you would take before anybody else. I know you and I maybe disagree a yes, little bit on this. Most certainly not. <laughs> um... But again, we can talk about that another time. If we're just talking about the regular season, I, who who is going to have a better regular season than him anytime soon?
1: Yeah, maybe Zion.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Zion's got a long, long way to go defensively. Yeah, yeah, sorry, I don't. I don't
1: mean next year. I just mean you. You said like relatively soon. I don't. I don't know what we're right. classifying that
0: as if we're saying like. But even like two, even years. Zion. At his peak, you know, whenever that happens to be, maybe maybe at his peak he can be a more dominant offensive player than Giannis, though even that is like pretty hard to envision given what Giannis was able to do offensively this season. But if you take into account the defense and the rebounding and everything else that Giannis brings to the table, I mean, that's asking a whole heck of a lot, despite how transcendent Zion was as a rookie.
1: Yeah, well, maybe that's a perfect segue into uh, rookie of the year because... Um... This is one where I actually don't want to make any points for the sake of argument. I think it's a pretty open and shut case. Do you have a case for Zion or anyone else? Or are we in agreement that it's uh,
0: asinine to even bring another rookie into this debate and that it's John Morant and no one else? I mean, look, Zion played 19 games. And I don't think you can give the award to a guy who played 19 games, no matter how transcendent those 19 games were. And, you know, maybe... I think the only way this was going to turn into any kind of competition was if Zion had played every game for the rest of the regular season, continued to absolutely tear shit up, and the Pelicans had leapfrogged the Grizzlies and made the playoffs. And I think even then, you would have been hard-pressed to take it away from from Ja and give it to a guy who would have played in 30-some games. Not just because of the games played, but because in those games, Ja was really exceptional and put in one of the best seasons for a rookie point guard in recent history like offensively at least you could put it up there with chris paul's rookie year um though paul was much better defensively Doncic, i guess if you consider him a point guard is up there but like aside from that like i think he was better than derrick rose was as a rookie um just an amazing season and I you know it would have been interesting to see if if the season had closed out and if Zion had continued to play the way that he was playing, whether he could have turned that into a legitimate race. But as things spanned, I don't really think there's any argument. Yeah, like
1: I agree that there's a chance Zion could have made this an actual debate if the season had continued, if he kept if he had kept doing what he was doing, if the Pelicans had stolen that eight seed from the Grizzlies, and also if he had absolutely stolen the show in those two mouthwatering matchups between the Pelicans and Grizzlies we were waiting for in late March, which is just such a shame that we don't get those, because those are really shaping up to be maybe t- the two most exciting games left on the calendar. And I believe it was a home and home in the span of like three days in late March that we didn't get to see, but we didn't get to see any of that. And I just think there are no debates here, certainly not from Kendrick freaking none, who seems to think that <laughs> He's the rookie of the year because his team was better. As I tweeted, I guess Kendrick Nunn would have voted for Andrea Bargnani over Brandon Roy in 2007. Um, but yeah, no, they, look, this is something I mentioned in um, one of those YouTube videos we did, and we did it on Jean Morant, and that it's if you if you followed along in like, the pre-draft stuff, he was getting a lot of rust comparisons because of how relentless he could attack the rim and all that stuff. But then if you actually watch him, he ended up as a rookie anyway being this kind of like mesmerizing blend of Russ and Dame in that he's got that relentless attacking offensive game. But he also shocked everyone with the way he could shoot. Like they, He ended up averaging 17.6 points and 6.8 assists on a true shooting percentage of 56.8. And he shot better than 36% from deep on nearly four attempts per game. And, you know, uh, I'm not saying he is Russ or Dame, but I'm saying like for everyone that, kind of shoehorned him into this Russ role. He is a far more efficient offensive player, a, hum, a better game manager, and obviously a better shooter at 19, 20 years old than Russ was for much of his younger years and honestly for much of his career. So I just think, I think he's actually a quite unique player in terms of the the blend to his game and and the different things he can do. And, you know, I've talked... I like before about how I'm. I'm so impressed by, it. despite how fast he is and how how important his speed is, that it's just so rare to see a young player, particularly a point guard, be able to play at both at that speed and in control. You know, and be able to slow the game down when he needs to. I just think he is, in terms of young point guards, honestly, like few we've seen before.
0: Yeah, I mean, I actually, I feel like I would compare more to a young Derrick Rose than I would to Russ um, and young Derek Rose was, was not that dissimilar from Westbrook, but he wasn't quite as um, I don't know if reckless is the right word, but like he was, he, he played a little bit more under control. I think obviously he had the supernatural athleticism, but he was also capable of kind of having the game on a string. And I think, you know, Jaws a better playmaker than Rose was in his early years like as a passer as a ball handler he's already doing stuff that is just so advanced and so impressive like the reads that he's able to make the way that he can look off a defense and disguise his intentions before making a pass like that's the stuff that really stood out to me yeah and again the shooting I
1: I can't find any example of anyone touting this guy's shooting if anything everyone questioned his jumper and thought that was going to be um, what held him back and that he'd be terribly inefficient at least to start his career. And again, just completely turn those criticisms on his head. Not only was he, you know, passable in terms of NBA efficiency individually, he was good. Like he was downright efficient on high usage. And yeah, I just think there's, there's not enough that can be said about how impressive this guy was for his age as a rookie point guard. And he was the best player on a team position to make the playoffs on the Western Conference, he was the best player on a Western Conference playoff team that people originally expected would finish 14th or 15th in the West, and he's 20 years old.
0: Yeah, and you know we can qualify that and say like there are a lot of reasons I think the Grizzlies were better than people expected them right. to be. Um, you know, Brandon Clark was fantastic. Dylan Brooks took a huge step forward. Valanciunas was great. That team as a whole overachieved for a number of different reasons, but obviously none of that happens without without a great floor general pulling all the pieces together and making it work and giving them not only, you know, a, a young leader, but also somebody who they could turn to at the end of games that they knew was going to manufacture good shots for them. Yeah. I'm not saying he was a one man show, but I think, um, I think he was undoubtedly their best player. I think that's very fair. Um, a bright future ahead for him. And, you know, hopefully, hopefully we get to see him and Zion continue to, to duke it out for years to come. Yeah. Uh, all right. Where do you want to go next?
2: Uh, we can go
0: with either. What do we have left? in terms of player,
1: sixth man and most improved.
0: Yeah. Want to talk sixth man? Let's do it. would you have? I, I've been saying this kind of throughout the season as we've been talking about awards, but I still have Dennis Schroeder. So do I. I just, I, I mean, he, he was part of pretty much all of the Thunder's most effective lineups. And I think a lot of the time, you know, when I look at sixth man, it's not, yeah, it's somebody who comes off of the bench, but you sort of also would hope that it's somebody who's closing games for teams. I think that's usually an indication of, like, how important that player is. And, like, Schroeder was closing every game for the Thunder. Um, that lineup, you know, with him and Shea and Chris Paul was one of the most, if not the most, effective in the entire NBA. And, you know, Schroeder wasn't a passenger in that. Like, he had a ton to do with it. He This was, like, I think his best shooting season. Uh, but he paired that with all the great things that he does off of the ball. I think he's a really underrated cutter and slasher. He gets to the basket. And I thought his defense this year was like basically average um, where in the past, I think he's been a minus on it, on that end of the floor. I think he worked really hard and, you know, he he used his length at the point of attack and I think uh, was much better at fighting through screens. And, um, you know, I've, I've talked, I think about how Chris Paul's defense was a huge part of why that three-point guard lineup worked, but I don't think we should underrate Schroeder's contributions to that either.
1: Absolutely not. You mentioned him not being a passenger
0: uh, in those lineups.
1: No, he is most certainly not a passenger in those lineups. Okay, First of all, yes, the the lineup is the best in the NBA. You asked if it was around the best lineups. I know it might have been the best lineup in the league. It was by far the best lineup in the league, and I think the hilarious part to me is the impact Schroeder's presence has on those lineups. So the Thunder starting lineup of Chris Paul, Shai, Alexander, Danilo Gallinari, Steven Adams, and Terrence Ferguson had a net rating of minus 3.5 per 100 possessions. The same lineup with against Dort, who was solid for them, really surprising in for Ferguson had a net rating of minus three per 100 possessions. So essentially the same thing. Same lineup, but with Dennis Schroeder in for either for Ferguson or Dort, plus 29.9 per 100 possessions. So essentially, a 33 points per 100 possessions swing when you go from one of Ferguson or Dort to Schroeder. Now, that's obviously not all, um, you know, just Schroeder's brilliance, it's a little bit more of how he fits compared to either Ferguson or Dora. Those guys are going to wear some of that too. And the lineup itself functions for a lot of reasons. As you mentioned, um, Chris Paul's defense, Shy's development, Gallo's shooting, Adams being able to do a little more than uh, people expect from him defensively at his size. But those are still staggering numbers. You look at OKC's top five lineups in terms of minutes played, three of those five have negative net ratings. And none of them, none of those three have Schroeder in it. The two of the five that have positive net ratings both have Dennis Schroeder in it. So, like, just any way you slice it, looking up and down this team and this incredible, surprising season that they had, the common denominator in every piece of their success is the presence of Schroeder. And he might only be their third or fourth best player, but I think if you're talking about sixth man of the year and which reserve in the league had the biggest impact on his team. I actually think this is pretty much a no-brainer and the numbers spell that out by far. That same lineup I mentioned that's plus 29.9 per 100 possessions. You can look at the 223 most used lineups over the last two seasons and that lineup ranks number one in the NBA. Number two would be last year's Warriors death lineup of Steph Curry, Klay Thompson, Andre Godola, Kevin Durant, and Draymond Green. Just to kind of give you some perspective on how insanely and almost inexplicably good that Thunder lineup was.
0: And, you know, somewhat fittingly, the, the last game uh, that the Thunder wound up playing this season was that game in which uh, Schroeder stripped Campbell Walker, like with just seconds to go in regulation and went in for that game winning layup to beat the Celtics. He, he was dynamite at the end of games. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, you know, you look at the, the kind of on-off stuff and and the differentials and the lineups that you're talking about, and I do think a lot of that had to do with the fact that the Thunder were so weak on the wings that, you know, just slotting Schroeder in for any of those guys that they were kind of kind of having to shoehorn into that, that starting spot at the three, like whether it's Terrence Ferguson or uh, Hamadou Diallo or Darius Baisley, like, against they, or- they, they just... <laughs> Dort, uh, who, like you said, did, you know, started to play pretty well toward the end of the season, but even still like, it just that amplifies obviously, you know, his impact numbers, uh, just because of how how poor they were at that spot. Otherwise, but obviously, a great season for him and and for the Thunder as a whole. Uh, is he is he gonna be a free agent? I don't think he is. No, I think
1: Gallo is the only one out of their core that was going to be a free agent. Like that was part of my argument as to why I thought. If anything they should have made a win now move at the deadline because
0: Gallo was the Yeah, they've got they've got him for, for one more year after this, Schroeder. Yeah. So fifteen
1: point five million. Which pretty good deal.
0: Yeah. I mean, so they, they got him in that uh that trade where it just seemed like they were offloading Carmelo. And I don't you know, I didn't have a, a ton of optimism about what Schroeder was gonna be able to do for this team. And uh sure enough he was very poor for them last season, but Obviously it's been a much different story this year. He he his true shooting jumped from fifty point eight percent to fifty seven point three percent. And that's by far the best mark of his career. So yeah, he he scored slightly more than Lou Williams and more efficiently. <laughs> yeah, this was not a particularly good Lou Williams season. I mean, obviously offensively, like he's pretty dynamic uh he's a great pick and roll player a, a, a great scorer off of the bench but I think he's giving so much of it back at the other end of the floor and I do think you know compared to the past couple of years uh, Lou wasn't quite as efficient offensively and like if we were doing a ranked ballot I think I would definitely have Harold so ahead of ahead of Lou so would I. on that ballot yeah um but uh, you know beyond Harold I don't know who else is like really in the mix for this award Maybe say Norm Powell on the Raptors, but he also started a whole bunch of games because of their injury issues. Yep. George Hill was fantastic for the Bucks, but didn't play nearly as many minutes as Shooter, and I don't think was quite as important to the Bucks as Shooter was to the Thunder. So, yeah, I think that's where where I landed on this. All right,
1: Who was your most improved?
0: I, I had Luca. Wow. Uh, and I think you know it came it came down to him or Tatum for me, but ultimately I just felt. Like, the leap that he made this year was so meaningful. Uh, You know, going from kind of like a fringy top 30 guy to like a top five MVP candidate and clearly one of the 10 best players in the league, leading the most efficient offense in recorded history. Um, And that's, you know, we talked, Cash, about what was going to happen with the record books this season. I know you wrote a piece about it, talking about, Like the Middleton shooting season, the Mitchell Robinson field goal percentage season, uh, the Spurs playoff streak. We didn't talk about the Mavs offense. I wonder what will happen with that. Because as of now, they have the best offense uh, in recorded history. Just a note there,
1: actually, because I think I had mentioned it when we first talked about it, but I had actually sent the league uh, a note asking what would happen, specifically with the Robinson field goal percentage record. And the league actually did get back to me saying that they don't know yet. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, that, okay. and that they will um, kind of evaluate all, Breaking news. all that stuff when when the season is over. So, I mean, look, I, I imagine that they do have some idea of what they'll do. I know you had mentioned, you know, on that podcast a couple of weeks ago, maybe just prorating it to the average amount of games that were played the same way they prorated everything to 66 games in the lockout season. Like, I feel like they'll have to do something like that. You can't just yeah. pretend this season didn't exist when it got as deep as it did. but at least in the meantime, the league is saying that they aren't sure yet what they're going to do with things like that.
0: Right. I mean, and I think if, if all this had happened, you know, like 40 games into the season, then it would be a different story. Right. But, you know, every team had played at least 63 games, you know, more than three quarters of the way through the season. So I do think that they will end up doing that. I can't wait for that to get aggregated cash that the league doesn't know yet. <laughs> <laughs> That's just scalding hot content right there. Um, I just
1: figured they just wouldn't if they didn't know yet, they wouldn't get back to me. It's nice that they got back they to you to let you know that. that they didn't you know. know yet.
0: Um, shout out Jim LeBombard. Great PR guy. Yeah, absolutely. It was with the Raptors for yeah, a number years. of years before le- moving on to the league office. Yes. Um anyway, so I just think like given all that, it's not just that that Doncic was, you know, the best player on a team with the best offense of all time. It's that like that entire offense revolved around him and his unique skills. Um, and just like as a scorer, as a pick and roll playmaker, his his ability to just kind of like beat guys off of the bounce, his finishing at the rim, which was up over 70% this year, which is just insane uh, for a guy who plays, you know, the position that he plays and just the way that he set the table for everybody else on that team. You know, obviously he had a great rookie season and I know there's, kind of some debate about what this award should mean. And if it's sort of like a second-year player who's taking, uh, you know, an expected leap uh, or following a certain growth curve, then maybe we shouldn't necessarily reward that. But I think this is a special circumstance. Like, we're talking about probably the best season ever from a second-year player. And I don't think, you know, even the people who are highest on Luka could have really seen that coming.
1: Yeah, look, I think what Luca did this season was insane. Um, The level that he got to as a second-year player is something that I don't know if we've ever seen before. We may never see again. But I will say if we're talking about straight improvement, and maybe maybe a flaw in the way I'm looking at this is I'm going – I'm almost maybe going by most surprising instead of just raw improvement, but I think I'd give the award to Brandon Ingram. Um, I was never that high on Ingram. Uh, I thought his potential was a little overrated. I just didn't see it from him up until this season. I laughed at anyone that called him KD Light. And then he
0: – You should still laugh at those people,
1: by the way. Well, Light. Light. Uh, I don't laugh anymore if they call him KD Light.
0: Legere. Um, but – KD Zero. Wow. Okay. Uh, just Look, he had a great – I'm going to let you finish. Um <laughs> So
1: all that said, uh, and the little belief that I actually had in Brandon Ingram reaching what others saw as his potential, was blown out of the water this year because, my God, did he start reaching that potential. He was an absolutely deserving All-Star who, quite frankly, even though the record wasn't great, kept the Pelicans at least afloat um, through a barrage of injuries and, and the usual Pelicans issues to the point that when... As I really we got back to the lineup, they still did have an outside shot at the postseason. And um, last night when I was preparing for this pod and I was looking at some of Ingram's numbers. And even me, as impressed as I was by his season, didn't realize how efficient he had been this year. His true shooting percentage was 59%. So I went in and I looked and I tried to find players who at some point in their first four seasons, which Ingram's in his fourth season. And I did it in the three-point era because I wanted it it to be guys who had at least similar games to Ingram that that could shoot, so I wanted them to be qualified three-point shooters. And then I just looked for guys that could match his usage percentage and true shooting percentage from this year in their first four seasons as a qualified three-point shooter. The only guys that have done that are Kevin Durant, James Harden, and Carl Anthony Towns. And again, I don't pretend Ingram is in that realm of player, even offensively. But I think the fact that he was able to, as a young scorer, put his name in that group with his usage and efficiency, you know, with honestly not that great of a supporting cast for large chunks of the season, especially because of the injuries, I think him elevating himself from where he was to even being mentioned in a group with those guys as a young scorer to me is more surprising, certainly maybe even more impressive than Luka Doncic taking the leap from already borderline all-star as a rookie to full-fledged superstar as a sophomore. Again, I think Luka's improvement is more important in the grand scheme in the NBA. He's the better player. That improvement is more necessary if you're talking about taking a team into championship contention eventually. But again, maybe maybe I'm being clouded by the surprise factor in it, but I really do think going from where Ingram was, to what he became this year, was the biggest example of improvement
0: in the league. I'm willing to say that he might be the most improved shooter in the league this season. Like, some of the improvements are pretty incredible. Like, he went from averaging 1.8 three-point attempts last year and shooting 33% to shooting 38.7% on 6.3 attempts. Like, he more than tripled his three-point attempt rate. And then the free throw percentage goes from 67.5% to 85.8%. Like, how often do you see something like that, where from one season to the next, the guy is just suddenly an elite shooter? And I remember, like, early in the season, just not really believing it. Obviously, the sample size was small, and I was kind of more buying into the three-season sample that we'd seen leading up to this one. But he kind of just kept doing it. Uh, and I think he tailed off a bit, like, toward the end of the season. And especially after Zion came back, I felt like, He struggled a little bit to sort of find his role in a Zion-centric offense, but um, there's no doubt that he made tremendous leaps as a shooter. I just think, like, as an overall player, I think he's very underwhelming defensively. He improved a little bit as a playmaker, but I still think he's fairly deficient in that regard. And... I don't know, maybe it's just like a personal preference thing. I, like you, have never been a big Ingram guy, and he certainly won me over in some respects this season. But I'm I'm definitely not willing to say that he made a bigger leap than Doncic did. And I also think, like, the leap that Doncic took is just, not only is it, you know, the most important leap that a player can take, but also probably the hardest one. And so I, I feel inclined to reward that.
1: Yeah, the, only, the last thing I'll mention there is... Um like the free throw numbers that you brought up, it never really made sense to me, even as a guy that wasn't an Ingram believer, that someone with his at least base offensive skill set could be a 66% free throw shooter through three seasons in the NBA. And I do wonder if that, you know, that number specifically him going from a 66% free throw shooter to an 85.8% free throw shooter, which even if you didn't believe in him as an overall offensive player, there was no reason when you look at his skill set that this guy should not have been an elite free throw shooter. I wonder if that is maybe like the biggest piece of evidence that so much of his maybe stagnation early in his career and then his breakout this year really does come back down to like the simple fact that this was, as many people have reported, like just a very low key, reserved young guy, practically a kid. Feeling much more comfortable outside the spotlight of Los Angeles, and maybe feeling just kind of more at home um, with less attention on him in New Orleans. And I don't know; like he, he just seemed like such a more comfortable player, and even in speaking to the media, seemed a lot more comfortable. And, and I don't know, maybe the up the huge uptick in his free throw percentage, which is more in line with his base skill set, to me might be the biggest indication that he really just did need a change of scenery and that LA did not fit who he was. I'm not, I'm not even talking about this in the realm of most improved player or being part of that debate. I'm, I'm just saying it's an interesting component of all this. that I, I just think overall he was a more comfortable player and even seemingly person this season. Maybe sometimes yeah. I mean, it's I just
0: about a player kind of finding the right spot. I mean, so I am actually very interested to see what next season looks like for him, Um, assuming that we have a next season, which, you know, is definitely not a guarantee at this point. But whenever the NBA starts up again, I'm interested to see what it looks like for Brandon Ingram, because you talk about, you know, him not maybe being that comfortable in L.A. or needing a change of scenery. And I think so much of, of his breakout this year had to do with him being like a number one option on offense having the ball in his hands a lot and not really having to defer to anybody else. And I think that started to fray a little bit when Zion came back and he had to reorient his role a little bit and start playing more off of the ball and learn how to play off of Zion. And that was an adjustment and it's going to continue to be an adjustment for him. And I wonder whether he can sort of maintain that efficiency or even amp it up a little bit now that he's playing with somebody who's going to command a lot of defensive attention, it could be really good for him. Um, But I think a lot of that rests on his shoulders. And I think he, you know, in the interim is going to have to figure out a sort of play style that finds a balance in between the stuff he was doing early in the season and what he was doing as uh, you know, like a secondary piece around LeBron James. And I think now that he's shown that he has those skills as like an off-the-dribble shooter and a guy that can kind of run the offense for stretches and score efficiently, you know, can he marry that now with an ability to use his newfound gravity to open things up for a transcendent scoring teammate?
1: Yeah, he averaged um, 21 points, five rebounds, four assists, and a steal in the 17 games that Zion was in the lineup. But his efficiency did come down a bit. Mm -hmm. Still pretty... Solid though, 44, 36, 86 shooting. I, I, think, I think he looked fine, honestly, as a secondary option, but I do agree that his playmaking will obviously have to improve. Th- though I do think he made some
0: leaps as a pick and roll ball handler this year. He did. And like, just, I mean, you know, it goes back to, to what we were saying about his improvement as a shooter. Like, I think coming into this year, I saw him, you know, not only not as a particularly good shooter, but one who, you know, was getting most of his threes as stationary shots the The ability to shoot, sort of like on the move, you know, coming off of screens, and the the, the different ways I think that he found to utilize uh, his newfound shooting touch uh, were really important, and that's certainly going to be important moving forward. But uh, I think we spent enough time on this award, so uh, I think that does it for players. Coach of the Year. I had Nick Nurse. Yeah. I know that you did too. Yeah. Uh, do we? <laughs> do we need to spend a ton of time on this? I feel like you know we've talked yeah. a lot about Nurse and the Raptors this season, and and what he was able to do with that team. Do you have anything you feel like you need no, to? No, uh,
1: look, everyone on this roster missed at least ten games. You and I practically missed uh, somehow missed ten games for the Raptors this year. Like it, it's <laughs> there's there's no there's no debate here. The guy reinvented defense, possession, and possession. They were gonna win 58, 59 games despite all the injuries, losing
0: Kawhi. It's a pretty open and shut case to me. Yeah. And I I mean, I think sometimes it's hard to measure a coach's impact on a team because there's so much stuff that we don't see. And that's surely true of Nick Nurse as well. But I also think with him, you know, more than any coach that I can remember, there is a lot of tangible stuff that we can see. Uh, And, you know, you're talking about funky defensive schemes his ability to get the most out of his players, uh, his ability to get creative with his styles and his lineups. I think just like the agility and the flexibility that he showed his willingness to do whatever it took and try whatever he had to try to stumble on a winning formula in a season in which uh, six of the Raptors top seven guys missed at least 10 games. You know, obviously he loses his best player, and his best three-point shooter uh, in the offseason, and the Raptors barely miss a beat. Um, they had, I think, the exact same record yep. uh, that they had at the same time uh, in the season last year. And again, like you know, we've been talking about it all season long. But uh, I don't think you can say enough about the job that he did. One more executive of the year. So, what a weird year for this yeah, award, yeah. eh? Like, I just. I couldn't really find, like, a clear-cut winner. I wound up going with Sam Presti. Wow, I did too, and I thought I was going off the board. (laughs) Well, yeah, because, I mean, Presti to me had clearly the best offseason, right? But so much of that is geared towards the future. So it's weird to give him the award for this season. But I think what ultimately swayed me is that the Thunder did get better this year, (laughs) if only slightly. And to manage that after your best player demanded a trade, and then the face of your franchise decided he was ready to move on, and to to deal with that and to get better while recouping a 21 year old uh, future All Star in Shea Gilgis Alexander, an All NBAer in Chris Paul, and an absolute bounty of first round draft picks, that is remarkable. And I think you know in the absence of of another candidate who just sort of, I guess, hit a clear home run. Um, Honestly, like the only other person I thought about was Rob Palenka. As crazy as that is to say, like he, you know, credit to him. Like they get Anthony Davis, the trade works out beautifully. And they put the right pieces around AD and LeBron to, to get the Lakers to first in the Western conference. So uh, I, I think he had a case, but. Um, You know, between the Lakers and the Clippers, I mean, to to cash all your chips in and send out that many assets to make your team better, like, yeah, you're making your team better in the present. But I think if we're looking at the big picture, I don't know that anybody did a better job this year than he did.
1: Yeah, again, he, he traded Russell Westbrook and Paul George in the span of a week and somehow got better in the short term while recouping like five draft picks per year until 2048 is absolutely mind-bending. But I will say, I don't think we're giving enough credit to the Clippers front office in terms of this award. We can squabble over whether it'll end up being worth it because if they lose one of Kawhi or Paul George after two years, or they just don't win a championship, this is going to go down as an all-time flunker based on everything they gave up to get Paul George, which you know in in a way was kind of like getting Paul George and Kawhi. But in, in terms of the spirit of this award, historically if you have an off season where you acquire a couple of superstars like that, it usually leads to being a shoe in to win this award. And I, I think the Clippers were still good enough, particularly when healthy that we might be overthinking this and, and the front office there might get the award. And I, to be honest, I don't even know who would, who would be named on it. Would be, would it would be Lawrence Frank, um, would it be? Um, I'm drawing a blank here. Michael, Michael Winger?
0: Winger. Would they throw Jerry West's name on? Like, I, I don't. I don't know. Uh, I think it would probably be Lawrence yeah. Frank. West is more there as like a consultant, right. and I think you know Frank is kind of the lead basketball decision maker.
1: Yeah. So I I do wonder if maybe we're just overthinking this, and and the guy that's going to get the award is the guy that leads the organization that acquired
0: Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. I mean, it's entirely possible that that will be how the voting goes. And I guess I won't be too aggrieved about that. And look, like, you know, we did this at the start of the season where we predicted who was going to win the awards. And for one thing, I'll give myself a pat on the back for picking Giannis to win both MVP and Defensive Player of the Year. But I also picked the Clippers front office to win the Executive of the Year award. And it would be kind of silly, I guess, for me to change my vote now. Right, like nothing, nothing's um,
1: changed in terms of the assets they gave up. You already knew what
0: they gave up to get these yeah. guys. Well, okay, is that true though? Because the fact that Shea had the season that he had and is showing the promise that he had is... I think they picked him to win Most Improved Player. I think you did too. Good
1: <laughs> Even though none of us picked um, him to win MIP.
0: No. Well, I picked Bam, so I think we can say that we both did pretty yeah. well with our predictions, regardless of whether they came to fruition or not. But I do think that recontextualizes the trade a bit. Like, I don't think you can totally ignore that. Like, if, if Shea, you know, hypothetically had just been the same player that he was last year, then I think it's like, okay, that that trade looks a whole lot better for the Clippers than it does now. and. I mean, it's funny because these two front offices now are sort of inextricably linked. And this is what we're arguing over, you know, (laughs) like, should Preston win or should the Clippers front office win? And we're sort of looking at it solely through the lens of this trade. But that's, like, that was the defining trade of this season. Well, I guess Anthony Davis, you you could call, you know, another defining trade of the season. But, you know, know, in the, the spirit of this conversation and the debate over this award, if... And and we've said before we think that the Thunder absolutely won that trade, and that doesn't necessarily mean that the Clippers lost the trade. But doesn't it make sense to reward the guy who came out of that looking a little bit better? Yeah, yeah. To me, for
1: the Clippers to consider themselves winners from this trade, they they need to win a championship. I, I know that that's kind of an unfair bar in a league where one of thirty teams wins it. But I really think that's
0: in a season where zero of team right, teams right. But
1: I, but you got to saying like at some point with with Kawhi and Paul George, they need to win a championship, in my opinion, to justify or like be contenders for like six years to justify that right. they gave up. Um but other than that, I think we can get the hell out of here. <laughs> I think we can make like right. Paul
0: George in Oklahoma City and get the hell out of here. <laughs> <laughs> well summarized. Um thank you uh, for listening to us uh not really debate but talk our way through the seven NBA awards for this season and again we'll we'll sort of have to wait and see how long it takes for the nba to to get around to doing voting for those and obviously we're still waiting to see whether nba basketball can resume in 2020 but for now we're going to sign off and i'm going to kick it to cash and stefan marbury so enjoy that interview for joseph Pacharo. i'm joe wolf we'll talk to you later
1: what's up pound the rock listeners Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For Soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. The Score's MMA podcast with James Lynch gives you your mixed martial arts fix. And the Fantasy Football podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show. What's What's going on, man? What's up, man? How you doing? Doing well. Thanks so much for joining us. You're in uh, Beijing right now, right? Yeah, I am. Cool, cool. Yeah, I know uh, you were on with Fat Joe, I think, last night. So we'll try to keep you as entertained as Fat Joe did.
2: <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do
1: it. First of all, what uh, what have you been up to during these quarantine times? I know you're a head coach for a team in Beijing, but there's been no game. So what have you been up to?
2: Well, we've just been practicing as of late, uh, um, waiting for them to make the announcement when they're going to start the season back up. Um, it's been a little challenging because our guys have been working hard for the last month and a half, almost two months, without any action. But, you know, they've stayed focused and and discipline so that's all we could really ask them and they're doing they're doing the most
1: we'll get to, we'll get to a little bit of basketball and the chinese season in a bit the first thing i wanted to ask you about really was um you know you made news about a week ago for helping essentially broker a deal that um had a supplier ship i believe 10 million masks to new york city where obviously it's greatly needed so can you maybe really tell us a little bit about how that came together and the process of you getting those 10 million masks to new york city
2: Well, I introduced um, Eric Adams, the Brooklyn Borough President, um, to some people who I knew who had access to factories here um, to get them um, 10 million masks for the hospitals in New York City, for all of the people that needed them, the firefighters, whoever in New York City who needed them. So for us, you know, we just pretty much trying to help. I'm from New York so I wanted to try to have some type of impact and, and help my hometown.
1: You kind of saw the beginning of the virus back in China when it was first spreading and one thing I actually learned today reading a, a Wall Street Journal piece was that I think it was on March 8th you actually sent Adam Silver a note yeah. telling him to shut things down and this was I think three days before the NBA actually did shut things down so what were you seeing on the ground in China that made you Take that proactive measure and, and send Adam Silver
2: that note. Well, I saw the precautions that they were taking and how serious it was. So, for me, you know, having access to Adam and us trying to continue to build our relationship with, um, and him being the commissioner and um, me inserting myself back in with the NBA and doing things for the NBA here in China. I thought that it was prudent for me to give them my understanding and my knowledge about what was going on here so they could take the same precautionary measures back at home. The way how they jumped on it right at the beginning was the way how it it needed to be done in order for them to get back into people working and and people getting back to their everyday lives. Um, I think, for me personally, um i knew that i knew i know some guys in the nba and well i mean it's it's a, it's a family at the end of the day basketball so for me giving him the the, the, the insight on what was happening and what was going on was vital
1: last week you uh, had a documentary released called a kid from Coney Island that kind of documents everything from when you were literally a kid in Coney Island to your high school years and being a on there and the NBA and your years in China. What was the process of getting that off the ground, and why now?
2: Like, Why at this point in your life did you think it was time for people to see the whole Stephon Marbury story? Well, at first it started out where we were talking about doing a life pick movie, Um, and then it kind of changed, and it went into the direction of a documentary-style pick for people to understand the basis of how everything started, what went on, having my family speak and tell the story about my life, about what happened in basketball, you know, people may watch the documentary and think it's going to be a, for the first time, they may think that it's going to be a a, a basketball movie, but it's it's not really a basketball movie. It's, it's about basketball and everything that goes on with basketball. I felt like this was the timing to, to share because I finished. So because I finished playing basketball for over 22 years, this gave me the opportunity to be able to share my, my story, to give people the, the facts about some things that they, they may have gotten misconstrued about, um, what went on during my, my time period of playing in New York, playing for Larry Brown, you know all of the different things that have gone on in the past that people only got one view from hearing what someone else wrote or spoke about in the on tv or in a newspaper so for me this was a perfect time to to create clarity and and to give people their own imagery of what went on during my time period in playing basketball in america so you get my side their side and then you can evaluate for yourself to get the truth
1: you mentioned um the way you think maybe your image was misconstrued by a lot of people what do you think the biggest misconception is then that people had about you only knowing you as a basketball player Compared to what people
2: that know you off the court was, I mean, they didn't really know me. People really only knew me based upon what was written about me. So you can't really go by um, what someone else's opinion was about someone who was outspoken. And outspoken meaning you tell the truth on the spot, you tell it like it is right away. You know, a lot of people, you know, weren't able to deal with the way how I I spoke up in the moment of what was happening in the pose of sugarcoating. I mean, I pretty much stated what is, is, is. So you, you really can't do anything about that.
1: You mentioned even like the, the time with Larry Brown. So I know you're now a head coach in China. And I was looking into, it. I think the team that you took over was 8-38 last year. They were 19-11 and 11 this year when the season was suspended. So you had some early success as a coach. Is there anything about, Going from playing to coaching that surprised you, that made you realize
2: or rethink
1: the way you used to interact with coaches, whether it was Larry Brown or anyone like that?
2: Um, I can see where that, you know, I wasn't, I'm not going to sit here and say I was perfect. I mean, I went against the grain with the coach, with the coaches would probably tell me to do when I didn't think that that was the, the thing that I needed to do. For instance, playing in the Olympics for Larry Brown. He told me to go one direction. I went in the direction that he told me to go in, and then he said, oh, why you didn't go the other way? So, you know, things like that may may happen. And, you know, the coach can change, and he can't go in the opposite direction of, you know, what you were thinking, which is cool. I think for myself, I've experienced that, but I've also was I've been able to – have that understanding with my players because I was a player. I I did have a strong personality on the court, which for me, it it gives them the freedom that they need. Um, But I do see where coaches can get mad and get frustrated with their players, but it's it's all part of the job. You don't bring it to the newspaper. I don't talk about my players if I have a feeling about something that's going on. I don't go behind their backs to create that synergy and energy. Um, amongst the press and amongst other people to be concerned about our team or talking about our team in any other way other than to keep it keep it cool. You know, when you got coaches that go into the media and start talking about players, I mean, obviously they're trying to create something.
1: Is that something that you thought um, some of your former coaches maybe did?
2: I know they did. <laughs> it ain't do I think. I mean, that's th- those were things that, that happened. I mean, guys like Stephen A. Smith and and Larry Brown had relationships with each other, and I mean, you can tell the the the, the information was being fed um, amongst each other based upon what was said.
1: The relationship you have with your current players—is it uh, you mentioned obviously the being able to relate to them because you were a player—is it even more powerful because of the name you had created for yourself in China, especially where you had become this icon? There's a statue of you. There's a museum named after you. Did that make it even? Easier to relate
2: with the players because of your status there? Um, I think they they more so respect the fact that all of those accomplishments have come about, but at the same time, I I, I keep it 100 with them, and they keep it 100 with me. So, you know, the only thing that I try to um, preach to them and get them to understand is consistency. You know, so we work at a certain level on the court, and what we put out, you know, in practice, that's what translates into the game.
1: I know the uh, the starberry brand is also still alive. You know, people here used to know about, I think when you first launched it in 2006, and then people didn't really hear a lot about it after it kind of faded away, but it is still alive. For people that didn't know that, is there any difference, and what is the biggest difference between the Starberry brand when you first launched it, you know, a decade
2: and a half ago, and the Starberry brand in 2020? The difference is, is I'm not on an end those platforms, such as a, a you know a store like Stephen Barry's, which was like 146, 150 stores all over America, um, I've tried to get in other stores with my brand and doing what it was that I was doing, but I had no success at doing so. So I think that's the only difference is um, being able to have that access to be able to you know put the product into those spaces where. Um, people will still have the access to go and buy product at that price. You know, things have changed a lot over the last, well, since the time that I first launched the brand. Um, but we're still working on it. We're still doing it. We do it on strawberry.com. Um, but at the same time, it's not, it's not the same when you have a, a company infusing all of what's needed in order to make the, the, the brand do what it's doing.
1: I know that in, in China, so you once won a, a Best New Actor award for, for playing yes. yourself in a biopic, and, yeah. uh, and you also played yourself in a musical, and now there's the the documentary that came out. So if, if someone oh, was me. making a Stefan Marbury picture, but for once you could not play yourself, who's playing you? Who do you
2: want playing Who would I have play me? Mm. <sighs> I don't know, probably the dude that played um, Jackie Robinson. Oh, in the 42 name? movie? Um I mean, yeah. F- 40. Yeah, I forget his name. He played in uh, Wakanda. Black Panther. <laughs> that guy Black Panther. Yeah, Black Panther. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's good. That guy is good.
1: So after everything you've gone through in your career, like from the high school hoops phenom to you know, early NBA years, some tumultuous years in the NBA, second chapter in China, now coaching. Is there anything that maybe you know now that you wish you would have known when you first came in the league? I mean, there's a lot.
2: You know, we don't grow from. 19 to 25 and from 25 to 30 and from 30 to 40 as a human being, as a basketball player, we're pretty much stuck. We're not, you know, we're dead. Um, I think for myself, you know, I've, I've grown as a, I grew as a basketball player from a perspective of learning the game and understanding the game from a multitude of different dimensions and from learning how, you know, to get people to do things that are needed on the court, um, For myself, to get myself where I'm a lot more consistent, China really helped change my game and gave me a different type of structure because of the discipline and the hours that we practice. We practice, you know, two times a day, five, five, five days um, out of the week for three hours. So you practice in the morning for three hours. You practice in the afternoon for two and a half, almost three hours. So this is consistent before the season. So you're having practices for um, this time period. It sharpens your game. So my game got better. You know, my understanding for the game got better. And as a person, I mean, you just grow. You just learn to have acceptance and understanding about certain things and about people. You learn that everyone isn't the same. Everyone has their own idea and everyone – you know, will we'll do what they want to do at the end of the day and feel the way how they want to feel no matter what. You mentioned, like, the long practices. I know
1: one thing a lot of people don't realize in the NBA is actual practices are pretty few and far between. So I
2: guess that would be a big adjustment going from that to China. Yeah, it is different. You know, in the NBA, you know, you pretty much do all your work in the summertime. Um, and... Training camp isn't as long as training camp in China. The season is shorter. It's 82 games. Now, next year, it'll be 56 games. So it's only 46 games. Now, um, I play one season of 46 games. I play most of my um, years that I play here were, you know, 32 games regular season. And then you have about 16 to 15 games for the playoffs and for the finals. So it's a different um structure and how you have to to prepare for the seasons so you know you practice a lot longer here in china you have a, a completely different system in how you prepare so that's the only difference it's still basketball but the preparation is different
1: all right let's get to some uh fan q a's and by the way it's chadwick boseman that's the guy that played uh in black panther and jackie okay. robinson chadwick all right. boseman yeah
2: uh, mm-hmm.
1: uh, all right, first uh, fan question. Who are your top three point guards in the league today?
2: My top three point guards. I mean, I really don't have a top three because I think all of the point guards are nice and on any night. Somebody could be the best. I think the guys that are consistent every night, you got, you know, Westbrook, you got Kyrie, um, Derek Rose. It's a lot of guys that every night, you know, bring it. You know, I don't really look at the point guards as it now being the best because you got points that are twos like Steph Curry. You know, he's a he's a two-guard playing, playing the point. He handles the ball. Kevin Durant can be a point guard. Um, LeBron James is a point guard. So you look at LeBron James and you say, wow, this guy is 6'8", you know, 240, 50 pounds, and he's averaging almost ten assists. So with his ability to pass the basketball and how big he is, it makes it extremely difficult to, to guard a guy like that. But he's really playing the point because he can he dominates the ball. Yeah, LeBron
1: actually leading the league in assists when it was suspended. Do you have a finals prediction for this year before
2: the season was suspended? That's the next fan question. I thought it would have been um the Lakers and Milwaukee. From what, I, from what I saw from watching them or the Clippers in Milwaukee. Who do you think would have won that series? Either LA team against Milwaukee? I mean, I think it's going to be a West Coast team. Next uh, fan question is, what was the best NBA organization you played for? The best organization? Um, probably the Boston Celtics. Um, I think with them um, winning the way how they've won for so many years, they've established an identity. Boston is a Basketball, sports, town, football, hockey—you know—they have—they have, they have a, a sports mentality there. I think the Celtics, because of the amount of championships that they've won, they've created this this identity, and that identity is a, a presence of a champion. So I think they they try to do everything in that form uh, within their organization to like i was trying to stay consistent that, and that's what they they pretty much do
1: you going to the celtics there at the end of your nba career was uh reuniting with kevin garnett who you started your nba career with in minnesota do you have any you know stories that stick out or anything you can share with fans just about like how intensely competitive kg was because we saw it on the outside but what was that like on the inside
2: i mean what you saw is what it was i mean kev loves basketball he you know, he uses his energy to get on the court and play at a high level. If you see Kev not playing that way, and if he doesn't have that type of energy, it's something wrong. But, but it, it was very rare that he wasn't like that. I didn't get a chance to play with him in Boston. He never got on the court. Um, but, you know, from playing with him when we were younger, that same intensity it just carried over and grew, and it became um, a way of how to hoop when he got on the court and other people started to carry on the same type of demeanor.
1: Next fan question is, is there a
2: young star in the league right now that reminds you of yourself? Um, I really don't. I, I think everyone has their own identity. You know, you can see flashes of guys doing some similar things. Um, but I think, you know, for myself, when I look at my game, I, I really look at Derrick Rose as one of the guys who has some of the same things that um, I did in plan and I do some of the things I did some of the things that that, that he does on the basketball court. Um, I think um, I like what I like Westbrook. I think as I said, I think we have some similar traits as far as our explosion is concerned. Um, Kyrie Irvin, you know, he does some things with the ball that I did with the basketball. I mean my, my range in shooting I don't think there are there are that there aren't that many guys that can really shoot from half court, jump shots, straight up, straight down. Um, it's it's uh, on the shooting side. I mean, I didn't shoot the ball as well as Steph Curry, but I I had that same type of range. I mean, he's an amazing shooter.
0: Yeah, I don't think so anyone has to... some,
2: some. Yeah, I don't know. His his shooting ability is is is, is impeccable. It's not it's not even close to some some degree to some people
1: next one rolling in is, is one i've actually seen floating around for years so it's good that this one came in is, is it true that you were considered for the lead role in Egon game?
2: yeah i was asked to audition to play me and i wouldn't i wouldn't do that
1: <laughs> yeah because the rumor was always that
2: you were
1: if not the player one of the players that served as like the inspiration for the jesus shuttle's work uh, character like did you ever have talks with spike lee about that or anything was there ever any
2: confirmation you were the inspiration for I that mean, that's pretty clear it's not really you don't have to when you go to coney Island and you do something about basketball i mean it's pretty much that uh <laughs> spike jacked the movie that's what spike did he jacked the movie <laughs> Well, I gave you the shout-out in it at least when uh, Jesus Shuttlesworth said, "What about Stephon Marbury?" He made it. That was the that was the try to make it to create that distinction of that that the distinction that this is not a, his movie. This is not a, <laughs> but it's cool. It's all good. I think my documentary it pretty much gives everyone the understanding about what went on, um, and what happened, which is it's a kid from Coney Island. You in Coney Island shooting. So this is what it is. This is what it's about. If you go to Lincoln High School, who else are you speaking and talking about? And all of the people around my way growing up, they used to say that I was like Jesus on the court. So, I mean, it it goes.
1: Speaking of Coney Island and Lincoln High, I know so you're one of um, a bunch of players that have come out of there. Uh, I think Sebastian Telfair was a Coney Island guy. Lance Stevenson actually went to Lincoln High. There's been a bunch of guys over the years. One of the fan questions is who's the best player? And you can't say yourself. Other than
2: Stephon Marbury, mm. who's the best player to come out of Cody Island? Um, I think it'll probably be uh, Sebastian. Um, he had a really good high school career. Um, he dominated. He played on a, on 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 a high. He played at a high level. He played on um, some teams that they won a lot. You know, they won consistent. It was it was different um, from when I was playing. Uh, when I was playing, my coach wouldn't let my coach wouldn't allow me to play in the second half if we were winning by X amount of points. You know, things changed. It was different and how how they played during their time time frame. But he he had a really dominant basketball career in high school. So I would say, you know, it's him. And I'm not saying that because he's my cousin either. No bias there. Do you uh, do you have any NBA coaching aspirations? You know, right now I'm focused on coaching here, um, but I, you never know what, what can happen, so I, I would never close that door. But right now I'm, I'm focused on building what it is that I'm building here. China's been really amazing to me, you know, after leaving America, after all of what happened in the NBA, um, I had an opportunity to put myself back in the realm of doing the things that I love to love to do, and you know, for that, I feel blessed and and thankful. And I made a I made an obligation to be to help basketball here, and that's that's what I'm doing right now.
1: One of the fans um, following up on the fact that you had brought we were talking about Spike Lee, and he got game and. We know that you grew up a Knicks fan when you were younger. So uh,
2: this fan was asking, in that beef between Spike Lee and the Knicks this year, are you team Knicks or team Spike? I'm team. They need to respect the, the, the person that's been spending the amount of money that he's been spending to watch the games. And um, he's been loyal. He's been con- consistent with being a part of the, of the Knicks organization and doing the things that we're needed, but at the same time, it's just a door. You go on one door, you can go on another one. I mean, it's not that serious. As long If you're trying to go see the game, go see the game. If it's about the status and how, you know, in which way you go in, I mean, I can understand that, you know, you've been doing something one way for so long and then all of a sudden you're asked to do something different. And I can get that, but I think they'll come to a compromise eventually. Now yeah, let's hope so
1: for Knicks fans' sake, because they've uh, they've been tortured enough. That you probably know. I was growing up a Knicks fan. Trust me, I know. <laughs> I was growing right. up, one and playing, one playing. Yeah, you're, The Knicks years when you were there, yeah, weren't uh, the best for the organization. Um, all right, let's finish with this one then, because it was another fan question: Is if you could fix the Knicks, how would you go about getting the Knicks on the right track?
2: Hmm, how long we got on this show? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, I mean, it's, the last 20-ish years haven't been long enough, so we might need 20 years of this I IG
2: line. It's, it's basically turned into a culture. How do you, like, like change that? Because with the Knicks organization, where people need to realize whether they win or lose, they're still the number one franchise and making money in the NBA. So, I mean, it's a business at the end of the day, and, you know, <laughs> it's, it's a real... It's a long, long drawn out, long drawn out thing as far as how to actually help that and fix that. You know, it takes it, it takes some changing. It takes a lot of changing.
1: Yeah, there's only so many GMs and coaches and players you can cycle
2: through. I mean. Yeah, it's a it's a little challenge. It's a little yeah. challenge. Yeah. I
1: gotcha. All right, Stephon Murray, man. Thanks so
2: much for joining us. I know it's yeah, early man. in the morning
1: in Beijing, so we appreciate you. No problem. You. Man. And uh, thank do. you for everything you did as well with uh, sending those ten million masks to New York. That was huge, man. Peace.